Welcome to the Global Energy and Environmental Law Podcast. Rick Reepstein teaches environmental law to non-lawyers at BU and Harvard Extension School. He spent almost three decades with the state of Massachusetts helping companies and others to comply with environmental rules and go beyond them to reduce the use of toxics, energy, and water. He also spent a few years as an enforcement attorney for the US EPA and the state of Massachusetts and has worked with both agencies to coordinate assistance and enforcement initiatives. He brings an unconventional perspective to the question of enforcement. Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Mayana. We've talked a little bit about on this program about various environmental enforcement methodologies, and um, we talked about the VW episode, for instance. There was also the BP scandal some years ago, and it doesn't really seem like corporations take environmental rules too seriously. So in your opinion, what would be the most effective ways of enforcing environmental regulations so that the violating company doesn't get treated either overly harshly but so that also feels like this kind of conduct can't continue in the future. Well, I, I think there are a lot of things to talk about to make enforcement more effective. And I'm glad you mentioned fairness. I think that's part of it. I think that if people perceive enforcement as fair, uh, they're less likely to fight it when it happens and they're more willing to support it. And the lack of funding and resources for enforcement is a fundamental problem. Okay. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? What about the funding part? What, what do you mean well, by that? Well, uh, just for example, those who read the New York Times yesterday would have seen an op-ed by Stephen Ratner about uh, budget cuts in general. And one of the prime examples he noted was a 27% um, cut since just 2010, amounting to $3 billion to the Environmental Protection Agency, which has had to eliminate more than 2,000 workers as a result. But if you go back in history, we've been seeing a history of cuts. We saw huge cuts happen after uh, George W. Bush was elected, um, which have not been fully, were never fully restored. Right. So I suppose the premise behind that is, and that, that does sound like bad news, that this is not the money there to enforce it. But again, isn't the premise behind that that these corporations won't just observe the laws by themselves that we have to sort of go after them and, and you know, apply some teeth for them to make them and uh, obey the law. I think that that is the fundamental premise, but there's more than that. Corporations have a kind of attentional focus on making money for their shareholders and, and uh, you know, if it's not publicly owned for themselves and, um, that focus leads you to not see the benefits often of being more responsible. So it's not just the enforcement and the punishment aspects of enforcement, but it's also the educational value of enforcement and the education and outreach about the value of compliance, which has suffered as a result of these cuts. Talk a little bit about what you mean about the educational aspects of uh, enforcement and what other uh, reasons for enforcing and punishing uh, companies there are, or other parties for that matter. Well, first I want to say that assistance and education are a major function of environmental agencies, and um, they need to complement enforcement, and we need to do both very vigorously. But unfortunately, we have a history of sort of doing one or the other. 
and sacrificing enforcement for assistance, which doesn't help assistance and doesn't help enforcement. But I want to mention that the um, purposes of enforcement are not just to punish. Right. You can do enforcement in a way that teaches people. Uh, in Punishment is, is the age-old purpose of, of, of enforcement, mm -hmm. and that creates a deterrent effect, which prevents further violations, both on the part of the violator and generally. Mm -hmm. But you can also come uh, develop settlements that will rehabilitate the violator, will make restoration and restitution, and sometimes they can supply a motivation to do something that ought to be done that isn't being done. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that you um, talked to me before this episode about an example in your experience of um, how some of this worked in practice. Well, um, I have a, a perspective on enforcement that, that has to do with the fact that I did assistance for many, many years before I became an enforcement attorney. So when I enforced, I always tried to come up with settlements that involved uh, pollution prevention, if I could, so that I would eliminate the root problem mm -hmm. uh, that caused the violation. Mm -hmm. And um, in doing that, um, I, I had many successes with this. It, it was something that I tried with every case that came before me, and most of my colleagues did it when a violator suggested it. Mm -hmm. uh, they didn't aggressively suggest it themselves. Right. But that did work in your experience? It in other words, companies were interested in, in mending their ways and, and doing better in the future? I, I would have to say that I, I think about half of the people that I enforced against showed a willingness to uh, make amends. Mm. And the other half were just indignant and angry and they wanted to fight. Right. right. 50%. And, wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. With, with them, punishment was more appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> so, so all the different purposes behind enforcement do serve a, a purpose, you're saying. Right. So, Rick, tell us about some of these enforcement methods and some of the episodes that you either worked with or that you've heard about that, uh, that did work and maybe some that didn't. Well, one particular case that comes to mind was when I called up the uh, the uh, chief executive of a company that had had uh, hazardous waste and air emission problems, and I told him I was going to be filing a complaint and trying to get a penalty from him, proposing a penalty. And he was just so upset, not because he had been enforced against, but because he never thought of himself as a violator. Right. And he, he immediately wanted to make amends and, you know, restore his own sense of himself as a good citizen. That, that's easy to tell when you see that. Yeah, right. So right. I worked with him. I actually visited his, his facility, which most enforcement people don't do. And when I was there, I saw a very large uh, piece of equipment using a, a very toxic chlorinated solvent, which was hmm. really the root cause of his violations. Hmm. And I gave him a lot of information that made clear to him he had a number of options, one of which included finding substitutes for that chemical. Mm -hmm. That is what he did. Mm -hmm. 
And because of his good faith, we uh, reduced his penalty, his cooperation, mm-hmm. and we allowed him to uh, use do what's called a supplemental environmental project, mm-hmm. where he could use 75% of the penalty money to do the toxics use substitution. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about uh, what those are, if you would, Rick, the supplemental environmental projects. Yeah, that's a policy that EPA uses to allow for settlements that have environmental beneficial, environmentally beneficial outcomes. Mm-hmm. And you can use uh, some of the what would have been a penalty uh, payment to do uh, something that is uh, uh, restitution, that is pollution prevention, that is educational, that has a connection to the um, violation that you that, that you got caught with mm-hmm. and in your expense do they work well those types of projects i tried to do an sep with every single enforcement case that came before me as i said some people were just recalcitrant so it didn't work every time but uh-huh. in the majority of my cases i was able to do that and they mm-hmm. were all i think far preferable outcomes because we eliminated typically would eliminate the use of a toxin that was the root cause of of the problem And that's because you then would require that uh, the companies would eliminate that kind of chemical, or is it because they found, you know, better technological methods, or or how come you could eliminate certain uh, chemicals in that context? Well, you can't you can't command a company to do anything right. in particular. It's right. it's voluntary. Right. But what you can do that I did because of my assistant's uh, background was inform them about their options that they okay. could consider. Oh, okay. And, and once you do that, uh, basically the heart of toxic use reduction is helping people to see that there's a better way. Mm-hmm. And once they see that they actually have options, these are things that because of their narrow focus, they never took the time to look at before. Mm-hmm. And enforcement changes that focus. Mm-hmm. And so then they see, oh my gosh, I can clean these parts with something much less toxic. Mm-hmm. It doesn't create hazardous waste. Mm-hmm. It doesn't create air pollutant, makes my workplace safer. Mm-hmm. And um, they will choose to propose that. Mm-hmm. And once we put that in the settlement, instead of getting some more money for the U.S. Treasury, Mm-hmm. which is a tiny drop in the bucket. Mm-hmm. Instead, we're getting a permanent change that makes the product, the workplace, everything safer. That sounds good. But um, sometimes I've heard also some of these projects might not work that well. You've heard something yourself about uh, an episode with the, uh, with DuPont and the EPA, a consent degree uh, about two, in 2005. Can you talk a little bit about how some of these projects might not work so well? Well, you know, I, I would say that 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 was. Pro- I'm not going to say that that was not a bad settlement, but there's certain things that that I think of when I think of that settlement. Mm-hmm. Um, that was an SEP, mm-hmm. and in response, uh, in exchange for doing the uh, beneficial projects, uh, the penalty, the cash value of the penalty was reduced somewhat. And mm-hmm. I'm not gonna, I'm not going to second guess the right. people who did that and say right, it wasn't right. a good settlement. Right. But I will observe that when I look at it, it said that they came up with, they worked on some kind of test on biodegradability of PFOA, Mm -hmm. the perfluorinated substance that we are reading about so much today, Mm -hmm. um, which is used in uh, stain resistant and um, uh, a substance that is used 
quite widely and is does not break down. Mm -hmm. So um, we are still having the biodegradability problem. We don't mm -hmm. know how this test that they worked on has actually been used. So what is the effect of that? If I'm wrong, I would love to know that that biodegradability test has made a big difference, but mm -hmm. we're still seeing a persistence problem with PFOA, which is quite significant. They also agreed to do some education for some schools in West Virginia. And again, that's great, but uh, did that really spread around and uh, influence education on green chemistry all around the country? For a violation that they had, the kind that they had, which was not giving information under the Toxic Substance Control Act that they should have given, which mm. I think of as extremely serious, right. I would have liked to have seen more. Mm -hmm. And given the fact that recently we are seeing a lot more incidents of PFOA, mm -hmm. I, I think we are seeing the fact that perhaps it wasn't strong enough. Mm -hmm. um, that's just my personal opinion. Sure, I would sure. have wanted to see a lot more for right, that right were they in in uh, bad faith or were they in good faith in this connection you mentioned uh, the rules of good and bad uh, faith a little while ago can you talk about how uh, those concepts play a role in the enforcement context of environmental laws yeah i i, I would like to take that more generally uh, and not mm -hmm. link it so much sure. to this case because again i wasn't i don't want to second judge second right. guess the people who did right. this case right. Um, but generally, in my experience doing enforcement, I found that people focused on w what good faith was exhibited after companies were found to be in violation. Mm -hmm. And any good faith that they may have exhibited before they were found to be in violation was not taken into account. Hmm. And in my experience doing assistance, I found great viola great variation mm -hmm. amongst the companies that I worked with. Some companies made significant efforts to try to eliminate problems, to go beyond compliance, to make their workplaces safe, mm -hmm. to reduce pollution, reduce the use of toxics. Other companies made no efforts whatsoever. Right. And I think that we need to make that distinction. We need to find ways to do that and mm -hmm. to make clear to companies that we will take that into account when we enforce, because if we did, that would motivate more of that behavior. Mm -hmm. I call that pre-contact good faith. Pre-contact good faith, yes. And also, obviously, also post-contact good faith. For instance, um, a new story broke uh, a couple months ago that, uh, with BP in the uh, Gulf of Mexico case where they had been, I forget exactly what legal se settlement it was, but they had been asked um, to do a, to create a, a natural project or some natural reserve or something like that. But instead, they proposed as part of that to uh, build a hotel and a golf course and, and so forth. Would that, in your opinion, be an example of how they're either in bad faith or are they just ignorant as to what really is necessary? Uh, well, I, I, again, I don't want to second guess the people who approved that um, settlement, but it doesn't... No, but we can second guess BP. So what do we think yeah. is going on with BP, for instance? Well, I, I think they don't quite get it if okay. that's what if that's what they're focusing on, and uh, it it does 
point to the need for greater attention to what good faith is and mm-hmm. what making amends really mm-hmm. is about and right, what right. restoration really is right. co- should constitute. Yeah. Huh. So, yeah, that's interesting to take those concepts into account. It does seem like something um, went a little bit wrong in that context. Uh, what about criminal enforcement? So you're talking a lot about voluntary conduct and, and good faith and so forth. But I've noticed you've also in the past mentioned that you think that we as a society in general rely too much on uh, criminal laws for enforcement. Um, and that's, I thought was interesting because in, you know, other people mentioned in the environmental context that maybe we should indeed look to criminal laws more. Um, so, so what do you mean that society relies too much on criminal enforcement right now in this context, environmental laws? Well, I, I want to preface my comment with the fact that criminal uh, enforcement is extremely important. Mm-hmm. However, if that's all you've got, if that's all you're doing, I think we're in a bad situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, to to make criminal enforcement succeed, you either have to uh, meet that very high bar. Mm-hmm. Um, or you have to kind of stretch that bar and bring it down, which uh, lower to encompass things that aren't really typically considered criminal, right. um, and expand the definition of mens rea, mm-hmm. and in and in a way that then begins to feel unfair to people. Hmm. So o- over reliance on criminal uh, enforcement, I think, creates a problem. Mm-hmm. Now we have it; we're having that problem, I believe, because of the. Uh, cut in funds. Mm-hmm. When you are when you have fewer resources, you have to make more of an impact. Right. So the temptation to uh, increase criminal or heavy penalties uh, becomes greater. And the, the drawback from that is you first of all, you have lesser prevalence mm-hmm. of, of enforcement. You, you have the cop on the beat less frequently. And when they're on the beat, they're extremely scary. Mm-hmm. And uh, people run from them instead of cooperating with them. Mm-hmm. And they are sometimes more unfair. And mm-hmm. that actually leads to greater resistance. And sometimes that's on the part of judges as well. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So then back to um, all the benefits and co-benefits that you mentioned of uh, uh, the environmental enforcement programs, the SEPs, Supplemental uh, Environmental Projects, and other types of sort of cooperative uh, enforcement mechanisms. If there's so many benefits of those, why do you think there's not more resources set aside for enforcement of them? I know you mentioned government resources, and we all know that's a problem, but why not then? Well, I think, first of all, people need to understand them better. Mm-hmm. And um, so I had a sense about that because I had that experience doing assistance. But I, I, I think that that was not clearly understood amongst many of my colleagues. So, for example, after that that case that I told you about with mm-hmm. the the president, the company that eliminated the chlorinated solvent, the president of the company actually wrote a letter to my administrator thanking me. For the enforcement, mm-hmm. um, he's because it had made his workplace safer because I had been fair to him, and uh, he was actually glad about the outcome. Hmm. Well, um, I I didn't get much positive reinforcement from my colleagues. They all suspected that I had been too easy on him. Hmm. I think that there's a focus on the punishment purpose. And the fact that I went to visit his facility was also seen as a problem because that seemed to some people to detract from EPA's authority. They're supposed to come to us. Mm -hmm. So I think that there's a a real mindset that uh, this kind of 
enforcement, uh, a more cooperative, collaborative enforcement um, may clash with for some people. So I think we need to educate staff more about its benefits. Mm -hmm. But I also think that the public needs to understand that as well. Right. We, we focus our, our, our sense of violators is that they, they need, we need vengeance against them. We need to punish them. We need to deter violators, but at least half of the regulated population and probably more than that are just people who have made mistakes or aren't attentive enough to what they ought to do. And they need help understanding what the right thing to do is. We need more of that kind of response. And the public needs to understand that that kind of response will be better off. I think if we have more of a relational approach between regulators and the regulated population, we'll have more cooperation, we'll have more um, support for enforcement programs. And that's interesting that you mentioned that, Rick, because that's some of the research I'm doing in public international law, where it has been shown that at the national scales, governments are actually more likely to comply with, for instance, climate um, agreements and treaties if they can get you know, facilitation and assistance um, that they're not necessarily wanting to breach any promises they've made, but, but that uh, they might actually be more likely to live up to them if, as you said, they get some some assistance and facilitation and so forth. So that's interesting to hear that that also works at the subnational levels, as we probably know that it does. Uh, moving on, Rick, to a little bit of uh, the whistleblowing aspects of this um, and back to the VW uh, scandal, for instance. Surely when these companies uh, make these wrongs uh, and commit these environmental or regulatory violations, somebody has to know something someplace within the organization um, so in your opinion, why why do you think that not more employees blow the whistle if they see some wrongdoing by their corporations? Um, in the VW case, for example, several people must have known. What happens? Well, I think there are a number of things to think about here. First of all, we need to have a wider perception that enforcement will be fair. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, for one, having worked with uh, within the system, I know that... Um, in at least EPA Region 1, where I worked in New England, there was very strict um, adherence to penalty policies and procedures so that there were strong safeguards against people being unfair. They, they, they did things the way they were supposed to be done. I don't think the public knows that. So when, Rick, I, when you say uh, uh, enforcement of people doing things, are you talking about the corporate level or within the EPA? You're talking corporate level, right? But no, I'm I'm talking about within EPA when okay. when EPA took enforcement, okay. uh, people people were very fair. They 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 there was there was strong safeguards against um, unfair procedure, and I don't think the public understands that at all. Right. And uh, half the people that I enforced against thought that they had been unfairly selected, unfairly targeted. Uh, and that the process was unfair. So I think that first, the first step is really educating the public about how fair the process is, at least it was where, where I worked, and, and how there are penalty policies in place to ensure those fairness. And I think we could make them even more fair um, by providing enough resources so that enforcement is prevalent and uh, doesn't have to inf- rely so heavily on a 
harsh enforcement in order to get the deterrence effect. I think that's number one. Secondly, we can do a lot more to encourage information from uh, employees, and we can do a lot more to ensure that our response doesn't enable managers to figure out who they are, um, to ensure their anonymity. Right. If you don't think about that, you can easily write to the company with, say, an, an information request letter as a first step mm -hmm. that that gives the game away, that tells mm -hmm. them enough information so that they can figure out who, who ratted on them. Mm -hmm. And we have to be very careful about that and mm -hmm. let people know that we will be so that they will not be afraid of retaliation. And thirdly, we need to send an extremely strong message and criminalize retaliatory behavior. Um, I think those are three steps that would be very important. But lastly, I think that we can redesign our enforcement of publicly held companies so that we are not punishing shareholders, customers, and employees. If you just put a big fine on a company, that's who you're going to be punishing. Mm -hmm. What you really need to punish are the managers mm -hmm. who, who did not um, have a culture of responsibility, mm -hmm. the managers who allowed this to happen, mm -hmm. and of course, the specific people who did it. And we need to very much make sure that we're not allowing the company to choose scapegoats. But in doing so, Rick, doesn't that speak to what we talked about before with the criminal enforcement? Wouldn't that be you know, the best way of, of getting to those particular few uh, uh, managers that are responsible? Wouldn't that be via criminal enforcement then? Or what else? how else do you think you can get to those, but those only? Oh, I, I tried to make clear I'm very much for strong criminal enforcement and it should be used judiciously. What I was trying to say was that I think w we have a current over-reliance on it because we are not doing enough ordinary enforcement. I see, I see what you're saying. So you do support criminal enforcement against... Uh, very much so. Okay, top level and, employees. And particularly, uh, I think we should do criminal enforcement and we may need to change criminal code mm -hmm. so that we can criminally enforce uh, top management direction and it's not so uh, dependent on on the kind of criminal evidence we need typically to get. What about the VW case? I know that you uh, you don't know about that company necessarily in particular, but if you were to guess, what do you think happened? Because I think that's just this one thing people are interested in knowing, you know, why didn't somebody speak up? S several people must have known. Why didn't anybody say anything? Well, I think that if you work for a company and all your friends work for that company and your community depends on the uh, viability of that company and the economy depends on it, you have to weigh uh, your choices. And if you don't think that the enforcement will be surgical and judicious and targeted – Let's say let's say you just want to go after the the manager. You want that manager removed who is forcing this to happen. Um, you you have to be assured before you damage your company that the enforcement is going to be absolutely appropriate and is going mm -hmm. to do what you want. That's why I, I said we need to develop that approach and communicate that approach. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because wouldn't um, all that it took uh, be something as simple as an employee being able to notify the government, as I'm sure they can right now, but then the government, like you said, simply sending or communicating with the uh, potentially violating corporation. Why is it that you think that that necessarily will 
spill the beans, so to speak, on which particular employee has uh, blown the whistle. They don't need to mention their names. I mean, there's several people working in several departments. It doesn't necessarily does it point out which particular employee or employee groups that uh, that talked about this, because so many people must know about some of these things, right? Yeah. No, I'm just thinking about the experience I had uh, enforcing against companies where I found that they were not monolithic at all, and that there were even people within the companies who who were very very much welcomed the enforcement very much welcomed the corrections that those that enforcement brought, mm -hmm. even while their top managers were fighting us tooth and nail. Mm -hmm. um, so I think we need to clearly separate that out right. and try to uh, speak to those who would see a benefit. But they need to know that the enforcement response is going to be targeted and appropriate right. because they're not going to want to damage their company and they're not going to want to be retaliated against. Right, right. Which makes sense. So it sounds like we need to have some rules or, or mechanisms in place that ensure greater anonymity towards whistleblowers. That will help. Is there anything else you'd like to say, Rick, or comment on? Um, a couple more points, if I could make them. Okay. Well, one is that uh, EPA is currently moving on something called next generation enforcement. Okay. And I think people should know about that uh, because they're doing something that um, I tried to promote when I was with the state a long time ago, but it was maybe premature. They're trying to get settlements where companies will agree to put in real-time monitoring and greater transparency. Okay. So if you can, if you have a company that's had violations and as part of the settlement, they agree to put a monitoring device in place that's going to post on the web or send an email to the agency so that you can really see if they're staying in compliance much better than before. Interesting. So that is a in technology. Yeah, that's right. That is a great new area to look at. And you can use consent agreements to get those in place. So that that's one thing I'd like to mention, and and applaud EPA for moving in that direction. Right, great. Um, secondly, I think that we need to really get uh, develop good measures of success. Mm -hmm. We constantly talk about numbers of uh, uh, penalty penalty numbers, uh, the value of the settlements, and those are important or the number of violations that were found, those are very important. But the best measure of success is if you can go out and measure compliance behavior. Mm -hmm. Are more people actually in compliance? Mm -hmm. Are more people going beyond compliance and addressing the root of the problem? Do more people understand what they need to do? And what is the outcome? Are we seeing cleaner water and air? Those are, those are the ultimate measures and we need to do a lot more uh, to understand the effects. And is work in that relation undergoing, do you think, right now? Or is it something the EPA is beginning to focus on? Or? I think environmental agencies are always trying to do that and always talking about that. But because of these astounding cuts and because the American public has been told for so long that environmental programs kill jobs, we don't have the resources to do this. Yeah, that's unfortunate, that rhetoric, isn't it? So, Rick, about the anonymity aspect of uh, uh, corporate whistleblowing, um, how do you think 
procedures could be improved to ensure greater anonymity towards employees? Well, um, this is analogous to the citizens monitoring and um, the ordinary tips and complaints that that processes that are in place. Um, so we already have ways of responding to verify information. So, you know, first, first of all, EPA needs to verify information, uh, but they need they need simply to attend to and show that they're going to attend to protecting the anonymity of tipsters. People are reluctant to provide information because they're afraid that they're going to be found out. So uh, that message needs to be sent that um, if, if EPA follows up with a company, it will be done in a way that does not reveal where the information came from. And, um, you know, that it just takes attention to that so that when you ask a question of someone, you don't include information of the company, you don't include information that allows them to figure out where it came from. It That's pretty much common sense. Right. Um, but also, you don't simply rely on a tipster's information and you you make that clear, too, right. that they need to give you information that you can follow up on that you can use. And then let's say you just schedule an ordinary inspection. You don't call attention to that particular department that you're looking at, but you include it in um, in your inspection. So I, I don't think this takes uh, a genius to figure out. Um, it takes making it a priority. It does seem, though, like it's something people are afraid of. Is that because um, there have been examples where uh, people have been found out about or is it just an irrational fear uh, when people are worried about their anonymity and from your point of view is it something also that maybe the EPA and other government agencies should sort of improve their ways about a little bit internally that they might be you know not really protecting people's names and information as carefully as they should or what's the history behind this fear? Um, I, I'm not basing this on a knowledge that that environmental agencies have exposed people to retaliation. What I'm basing it on is the call for information. You will see quite typically, uh, please submit tips and complaints here. And what you need to see is in really big red letters, we will protect you, your the source. We mm -hmm. will not provide information that will allow them to find out who you are. We will not make public what you provide to us. And we will take action if you are retaliated against. And if, if as a result of our enforcement, you are retaliated against, here's the number you call. That you don't see. Right, right. Huh. That does sound like those would be two good steps or some good steps to take. You talked about the educational aspects of enforcement, Rick. Can you talk a little bit about uh, how expensive it would be, um, how cumbersome it would be to um, to improve that aspect of enforcement? So you talked about educating the public, um, school educational programs, companies, outreach programs, things like that. Uh, what would it take to improve that aspect of, of the programs? Well, I, I think that the uh, expense of education is extraordinarily minimal compared to uh, the expense of taking a lot of enforcement. And let me also mention that when you take enforcement, and if you don't tell anybody about it, it doesn't have a general deterrence effect. So you want to use education and publicity to magnify the effect of everything that you do. But I want to 
tell you a little bit about um, the area of lead poisoning prevention, the lead disclosure rule. When I enforced the lead disclosure rule, I found that people didn't understand it. So that when I left EPA, I applied for a grant. I got a grant to develop courses on that for real estate professionals. And I've delivered that course to more than 3,000 real estate professionals across New England. And the response has been really significant in that people come into the course to get continuing education credits, thinking it's going to be boring. And they walk out saying, oh, my God, I never thought about it that way before. So what we need is education about why these rules are in place. I talk to them about what lead does to the brain. I talk to them about how if they fully comply, they get liability protection, which they don't even know. They don't understand how the law works. They don't understand why the law is there. So they think it's just a paperwork bother. Now, if we and, and this educational effort by which I reached thousands of people was extraordinarily cheap. Right. And also presumably something that, like you said, would have a, a lot of monetary value in the future, not just, you know, because of each individual company or but, you know, for the synergistic effects it would have in the future. So typical compliance education is tells people what they need to do. But we need to treat them like intelligent, moral actors and try to persuade them and help them understand why they need to do, why the rule is in place. There's a general resistance to government today. There's a general skepticism about government. There's a sense that government is intrusive. I think people need to understand and appreciate that the rules are make sense. Mm-hmm. And yeah. we need education that helps people to see that. And what about something like um, education of the general public in the media? It seems like, to me at least, that sometimes the media is either biased, sort of, you know, against even mentioning anything about the environment or, you know, deliberately not wanting uh, to bring up certain topics when they could. For instance, you know, you hear these reports of extreme weather and weather forecasts, but they hardly ever mention climate change. How, you know, why is that in your opinion? And could the general public sort of be brought to be informed better about these uh, things through the media? Well, I think that one of the problems is that um, environmental news is considered to be depressing. and um, Which it is these days. <laughs> well, it is, but there's a lot that it that doesn't have to be. Right. Addressing environmental problems is a key to making our lives better. Mm-hmm. All our environmental problems are symptoms of climate of problems that if we worked on them, we would have many, many benefits. And uh, the successes when we actually do address environmental problems effectively by addressing their causes, the benefits and the successes are quite considerable and there's not enough reporting about that. And do you think though that it's because it's depressing because, uh, or do you think there's other interests behind this whole lack of environmental news? Because surely a lot of other news, you know, there's a lot about Black Lives Matter right now and in the media and gun violence. That's super depressing. So why do they report that, but not, uh, you know, something about climate change, for instance, that also could have severe effects on people's lives and livelihoods? 
Well, I think there are a number of things at play here. One is that the story is a little complicated. Two, it goes against the current narrative that government can't do anything right. Three, it goes over the current against the current narrative that environmental initiatives cost money and they're extra and they're not really at, and they they involve sacrifice rather than making our lives better. Um, and then four, I think there's a lot of corporate interest behind uh, news reporting, and I think what that makes for is a focus on sensational stories. Right. So I, I think there are a lot of things at work here, most of which are social psychological in nature, but that I think that doesn't mean that they're insurmountable. And I think that we can develop a new approach, a new outlook, a new attitude. And I think it's very important to focus on environmental issues in that way. I just want to mention one thing, which is that once you start talking about environmental issues as something that really can be good for you in the you know environmentalism is good for you you immediately get attacked by people who say oh you're putting a gloss on this you're 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 too positive you're ignoring the negative and of course that can happen you could be ignoring the negative you could be making it too positive but it doesn't have to be that way it can be a sophisticated message that mm -hmm. things are very depressing but there are things we can do. Mm -hmm. Not simplistic. It takes a lot of work. But there are ways forward. Mm -hmm. And that are also being taken right now. You know, And even at are the, having yeah. tremendous benefit. Yeah, exactly. Great. So it sounds like um, it's sort of an effort that needs to come from many fronts. And I think at root, we need to start revaluing the potential for government, which right now is a battleground for partisan interests. Right. And those of us who want a better world need to come together and come together and call for government to bring us together. Great. That sounds good. Let's hope that they'll do that. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you, Mayara. Thank you for listening to the Global Energy and Environmental Law Podcast.